is a privilege to be here. We certainly miss the Barnetts. We had the privilege of being able to uh, worship and serve together for five, six years, something like that, before the Lord brought him your way. He's probably one of my favorite Bible teachers anywhere. I, I was glad to be able to be back in Sunday school today. If you you missed uh, in attendance, you just missed, because the way that he brings stories to life, you can just tell a love for God's word, love for the Lord, and a love for the gospel that's always a challenge to me personally. So I, I praise the Lord that he's called him, and you, uh, let's see, Christ, through his people, called him to serve as your pastor. And, pray his blessing on your church. We do try to uh, pray for different churches that we're in connection with, and, and you're on our list. <laughs> so know that we are, and we pray for you guys throughout the year at different times, and we're thankful for that. Uh, let's pray. Uh, once again, ask the Lord's blessing on his, his word. Uh, Father, we are a needy people. Uh, you are an all-sufficient and generously giving God. I pray that you would speak to us through your word, and we would magnify Christ not just in the, the words that I would say, but in our hearts. So give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Um, unlike the people that Isaiah went to, may we hear, and may we believe, may we respond, that you be glorified. Amen. So uh, just, I guess, a full disclosure or confession. Uh, this is a Christmas sermon, but it's okay to talk about Christmas-type texts other than just December, I hope. If not, then... You're going to be upset at me for the rest of the sermon, because that's what I'm going to do. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 7, texts that you are familiar with and heard and probably read uh, with, a month ago, Isaiah 7.14, remember this, what the Lord says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's right. That's a promise made in the Old Testament, a promise that we see kept in the New Testament, where Matthew uh, sees that quoted and, and gives us the explanation for it. So Matthew chapter 1, we'll be in a few different texts today. Some of the texts that are at the forefront of my mind were the readings that you heard this morning. So in Matthew chapter 1, the angel has appeared to Joseph. Joseph is considering what had happened with Mary. As he considered these things, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Right? Jesus uh, is, is Yeshua, or Joshua means the Lord saves. So there's a little bit of a play on words there. Uh, you're going to call him the Lord saves because in him, right, the Lord will save his people from their sins. And this is Matthew's then kind of commentary on this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. And that's just a, uh, an exact translation of, of this Hebrew name, Emmanuel. Uh, in, in Hebrew, it's spelled with an E. In Greek, it's spelled with an I. And that's why, if you ever wondered which one's correct, it's really both, just depending on if you're looking in Isaiah or you're looking in Matthew. It's just a little Christmas, but to tuck that away next year in case you see it spelled differently than you would expect. When I think about Emmanuel, though, and I, I read this, and how, how often it is that we hear that and we would sing, right, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and it can just sort of wash over us. You ever experienced that, where just something that, that starts off exciting just kind of becomes commonplace and we sort of miss it? 
And that's why the sermon title would be The Wonder of Emmanuel, because really, if we, if we zoom in on that, we try to think about it, piece it apart, slow down a little bit. Maybe it helps that it's not the Christmas season, and so it's not on your, you probably have taken down your, uh, your, your signs, maybe from Hobby Lobby or wherever else, say, you know, Emmanuel or something like that for your Christmas decorations. They're probably gone, but, but maybe that'll help us to think about it a little bit more clearly. God with us. God with us, right? And that distance is what kind of boggles my mind. And that's really what I want to focus on, the, the wonder of, of that, those two realities, God and us, and the distance between those is what I want to center in on. So that's where we'll start, the wonder of Emmanuel. God was with us, and that's, that's the past. We'll actually have a Emmanuel past, present, and future uh, if we make it all the way through everything that I have outline-wise today. The past of that, the wonder of Emmanuel, starts off uh, really before the beginning. And so we're going to try to think through and, and, and I hope to expand the distance between the God part of Emmanuel and the us part of Emmanuel. So when we think about God, when we're first introduced to God, he's just the reality of uh, not just a character in the story, but the author of the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then when we go into the New Testament, we see John starting the same way, right? In the beginning, and so like, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. I heard, I've heard this before. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then as that passage goes forward, we see that it is the Word of God who created all things. In Him, all things were created. Uh, and matter of fact, nothing was created that wasn't created by the Word. Okay, is that just another name for God? Well, it's not. Right? It's the second person of the Trinity that we're introduced to, and we come a little bit further down that passage, the Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. And who's that? That is Jesus. So we start, we see that in John 1, and I'm thankful for the people that uh, put in chapters and put in verses in the Bible because it helps remember. If you ever, if you ever need to remember uh, Jesus as creator, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. Uh, all worth looking at. But Colossians 1, we preached through Colossians. I preached through Colossians last year. And it says that same thing, right? All things, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. And Hebrews 1 says that same thing, right? The, uh, in the past, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, whom he, the heir of all things, right? By whom, through whom he created the world. Okay, so when we start off thinking about Emmanuel and we think about that God part, we need to think about creator. And what could be greater than that? Matter of fact, the, the most clear distinction in all of the universe, I'm just going to keep bumping that, that's okay. The most clear distinction in all the universe is that there is a creator and there is creation and everything else is like subdivisions of creation. But that's the first and greatest distinction, that there is a God who is the creator, and then there's everything else that he has created. Uh, I used to play with Legos. Legos? Anybody? Uh, I got rid of my Legos when I was a kid. Should never have done that, because then I had to buy new Legos for my kids. <laughs> Played with Legos, so hold on to your Legos. Wherever you are, at any stage of life, just hold on to them. They, will, they continue to be valuable and more and more expensive. Also played with G.I. Joe's. 
and I enjoyed playing with the little soldiers, right, and all those different action figures. And, but I got frustrated because I would want to, maybe it was a short attention span, but I would, I would want to build these different things, and then I would want the wars to play out between these little soldier figures, but they could never do what I wanted because I had to move them, and then, and then I would get distracted. I would go somewhere else. So it's like I could never quite play the way that I wanted to play. But what if I could become one of those soldiers or one of those Lego figures, right, with the sea hands and the stiff, right, the stiff ankles? If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you should just play more with Legos uh, because this is a really good illustration. But that's sort of the the difference between me wanting to have these battles with these soldiers and the soldiers themselves. And it's like, man, if only I could, only I could communicate with them, if only I could become one of them, then I could interact with them the way that I wanted to. But there's a big difference and a big distance between a human and a Lego, or a human and a G.I. Joe. Or maybe, I don't know if you're good at drawing. I'm not good at drawing. Uh, And so another way I try to think about this distinction, it's not the same, no illustration ever works, uh, but you can imagine like looking around here, color and texture, just as we look at each other, right? Uh, And then compare that to a two-dimensional black and white stick figure that you'd make with a pencil. Now, what's the difference between a real flesh and blood breathing living human and a stick figure representation? Even if I drew my wife and, you know, just did the little swirly lines with her hair, I'd be like, look, honey, uh, this is you. I'd be like, are you five? Like, like, that's not me. But the difference between a real flesh and blood human being and a kind of sad looking two dimensional stick figure is actually nothing in comparison to the distance between God the Creator and his creation, between God and humanity. And yet the wonder of Emmanuel is that God, the uncreated creator, became part of his creation. Right? I never got to become a Lego or a G.I. Joe uh, so I could play, but God the creator did actually enter into creation to become a human being as much of a human being as you and I are in the person of Jesus Christ. We see that uh, a passage that kind of gives us these dissent things is in Philippians chapter 2, which we heard read this morning. And I think it, it plays this out so clearly for us, but not just humility. That, that, I think, is the word that we would often think of. But have you ever considered the fact that there's a difference between a humility and a humiliation? Like, humility is a virtue, right? We all do want to be humble, and we don't like it. We we like when we're proud, uh, but we don't want anybody to call us out on it, and we certainly don't like when anybody else is proud. But we know that uh, even especially as followers of Christ, we want to be humble. Well, humble, being humble, or humility, I think, is me putting myself into a lower position. Me willingly uh, serving you, doing something for you, right? But then I feel good about it, too. That's okay. Okay. Uh, sure, there can be sin lurks everywhere, but but in humility as a virtue, when I lower myself, I feel good about myself because I know that that's what I'm supposed to do. That's humility, but what about humiliation? Humiliation is you lowering me kind of against my will. Lower than I wanted to go without, uh, lower than I'm comfortable without really any of the honor that comes along with me choosing to be humble. And as we think about what happened to Jesus, it's not just a humility that he exhumed, but actually he was humiliated, right? That he, yes, willingly, but he was forced lower and lower and lower. 
And that's what Philippians 2 talks about. When he who was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clutched or held onto, but he, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It was humiliating. It was a willing hu- humbleness, a humility, but it was a humiliation for the creator God to become part of his creation. So Emmanuel starts, God, the uncreated creator, becoming part of his creation. That's the first part of that distance. But then the story continues where God, the glorious king who is worshipped by angels. That's Isaiah chapter 6, right? Uh, The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the, the train of his robe, it filled the temple. And he doesn't just have servants, he has angels. And they're not just standing, they're flying and he's too glorious for them to even look at. So they, they cover their, their, their eyes. They, they cover their feet. They fly around and they're shouting back and forth to each other in the throne room of God about the glory of this king. And Isaiah sees that. Right? That didn't start when Isaiah showed up. Right? It, the, the way that that text reads is that this is constantly happening. Well, who is that on that throne? Have you made the connection to John chapter 12, where John tells us that it is Jesus, the Son of God, the Word, who is sitting on that throne? So Jesus is used to the praise of the angels that he created as he sits on the throne, ruling over all of creation. God is the glorious king worshipped by angels, but God with us means that that same glorious king was despised and endured shame and humiliation, and rejection, and betrayal. You see how the distance of that kind of provides a clarity to what we have read so often? This next part is to kids. Oh, God, we do have a few kids here. Okay, so can you imagine, because grown-ups, we don't do birthday parties for ourselves, so just remember when you were a kid. Can you imagine a birthday party? A big birthday party. All your friends from school or everywhere else, they're all invited But instead of celebrating you on your special day, everyone that's there spends the entire party making fun of you, and no one will play any of the games with you or even let you have any of your own cake. It's like, what a lousy birthday party, right? Like, that's the worst. And we're all like, that would be wrong. Like, come on. Like, this is the one day that everything's about me. Like, I think every day's about me. But on our birthdays, we're just kind of like, everybody has to admit that everything's about us. So they agree with us about those type of things. And so that special day for us, we're just kind of like, that's wrong for, for the people who are supposed to be here in honor of me to despise me instead. But that's exactly what happened to Jesus. He came to his own people, his own place, but he was rejected and despised and shamed. We could look at, at Luke chapter 2 to see that distance that we're always reminded of, that he wasn't born in a palace, but he was born and, and placed in a stable. A feeding trough was as good as they could do. Better than the cobblestones, I guess, but how much better, right? Just wrapped in swaddling clothes, not, not honored, not announced in a palace, but announced to shepherds. Shepherds that, as we hear every Christmas, are not the highest of the high, right, but the lowest of the low that would come and announce that to him. And then Herod and his murderous insanity and the evilness of his sin, right, seeking to kill him. Could you be, 
Could you be more rejected than Jesus was rejected by Herod? Hunt him down and murder him. His family, Jesus' family, thought he was crazy. The Pharisees opposed him. Crowds and crowds of followers left him because of his teaching. Judas, one of the close 12, betrayed him. Peter, probably one of his absolutely closest friends, denied that he even knew him in his moment of need. The rest of the disciples abandoned him. The people who had cried, right, Hosanna in the highest, rejected him. Pilate denied him justice, and the Romans murdered him. And this is God, the glorious king, worshipped by angels with us, despised, rejected, shamed, humiliated, and murdered. The distance between the L, which is the God part of Emmanuel, and the with us is staggering. And in that, we see yet another aspect of contrast. So we have the uncreated creator entering creation, and we have the glorious one uh, being shamed, and then we have God, the perfect sinless one. That's who God is. Perfect righteousness. No sin. I am very picky when it comes to coffee. You might think I'm joking. I'm, I'm not joking. Uh, I would say, and I think that friends and, and family and other people who know me would back me up on this, that if coffee was righteousness, then I would be, I would be holy. Uh, it has to be fresh ground. And you're like, not, not, it needs to sometimes be fresh ground. It has to be fresh ground or I won't drink it. The water needs to be hot enough. That's a common problem with your coffee makers is that the water doesn't get hot enough. Uh, another common problem is a, it's a proper ratio between how much coffee and how much water. And so I want to be precise. So I have a scale, I'm serious, uh, where I have a 13 uh, to 1 ratio of water to grounds. And I, I measure it out every morning, uh, 25 grams of coffee uh, to 325 grams of hot enough water, fresh ground. Uh, and then I would drink it black because if you're going to put that much energy into coffee, right, then uh, it needs to be good. I don't need to mask it with anything because it's good enough to drink. Uh, snob is fine. That's the word that is commonly used. Uh, my tastes, my tastes are too refined for poor coffee or, or so I would like to believe. Uh, my wife, Leanne, she knows what I'm going to say, is very picky when it comes to fibers. Uh, we're quite a pair, but uh, cotton and linen, uh, this is a wool jacket because we, we would not have otherwise. Uh, <laughs> linen, silk, wool, right? Wonderful, natural fibers, never polyester or never nylon. Can I, can I say what happened this morning or... Did I just set it up like I have to? I could. Okay, so this morning I said, well, Leanne, so this is a recent thing. My, my coffee snobbery has gone back many years. Uh, but this fiber, she calls herself a fiber snob, right? Not just picking on her un unwillingly. So I said, you know, Leanne, was your wedding dress, was it cotton or, or silk? And she said, oh. it's like, well, does the wedding count if my dress was polyester? I hope the answer is yes, because otherwise, 15 and a half years, and we have six children, it's, it's a little awkward to think about. So if fibers, if fibers were righteousness, then Leanne would be holy. But uh, perhaps you have something that you're almost religiously uh, picky about, uh, where you have to sit, or whether it's college football, or, or professional football, or 
where you'll shop. Maybe you're picky about something as well. But coffee and fibers or really whatever you're picky about, that's not righteousness. Uh, God's will is righteousness. Uh, And so when I think that I'm too good or too whatever for bad coffee, which is just ironic because I started drinking coffee because it's a fellowship drink and now I only make my own. It doesn't make any sense how things work. But that's what kind of comes to my mind when I read what Habakkuk says about the Lord, that, that he is one who is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. It's not like God is blind or doesn't see, because other places, right, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro, beholding the evil and the good. So, so how could he have eyes that are too pure to look on evil, and yet those very eyes look at evil? And it's that same thing. It's just like sin will not stay in God's presence. That's the type of righteousness that he has, right? Sin must be dealt with and must be pushed away. Why is that? Because as the Psalms say, Psalm 11, verse 7, the Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds. James 1, God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. There's nothing about sin that comes close to God. And ultimately, we'll see that when all things are said and done and we stand before God in judgment. He is holy. He is separate and distinct from the sinfulness of creation. And there is none holy like the Lord. He is the definition of righteousness. It's not like there's righteousness and then he just lives up to it. What he does is what righteousness is. Right? He is that standard of holiness and righteousness. That's who God is. And yet, when we think of Emmanuel, the perfect sinless one entered a sinful world. When I think of holiness, I think it's, it's valuable to think of uh, a bride on a wedding day, whether the dress was cotton, silk, or polyester. Uh, bright, shining, spotless purity. I have three weddings that are going to be uh, coming up at our church this spring, which is a lot, even for, for us. Um, you think of those brides, how much time are they going to spend getting ready that day, right? That whole week, maybe. The hair, perfect. Makeup, perfect. Dress, perfect. Shining and spotless. The, the right shoes and, and just every element of it just has to be exact so that if she enters, right, it, the, the, the groom, he's, he's, his breath is already gone. But everybody else standing in honor of that, just, just absolute spotless purity, just shining in all of that beauty. Uh, but what if, Fessa is a young woman that's getting married, um, she's the first upcoming wedding. Well, what if on her wedding day, in her wedding dress, shoes, hair, makeup, right, all of that, what if she were to be on her hands and knees in our bathroom scrubbing the toilets before her wedding? Do you see it? That doesn't make sense. What, what if a, a bride in, in all of that regalia, as it were, uh, out shoveling manure in the barn? Is that the outfit that you would wear? Is that what you would expect? Right? I don't think there's a person on the planet that would just be like, yeah, that's a good idea. Be like, uh, maybe that could wait. Uh, maybe I could do that for you. Now, hopefully the groom would step in and do something like that. But that's the type of distinction that I see between the holy righteousness of Jesus Christ, God, with us in our sinful world. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, right? Immersed into the muck and filth of our world, the spotless one. His eyes are too pure to behold evil. His, his hands are unstained with it, and yet he's shoved into the middle of it. And even more than just entering and enduring our sinful world, that's bad enough. Like, what is Jesus doing here? What is he doing here? Like, you shouldn't be in this place. You shouldn't be touching people like this. You shouldn't have anything to do with me. What are you doing here? But yet it actually goes further than that. Jesus didn't come into, merely come into a sinful world. But we see in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, probably one of my favorite verses, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see that? Yeah, he entered a sinful world. He endured temptation. He remained unstained until on the cross, the stain infected him. Not the stain of his own sin. It's not like that was too much for him to endure and then Jesus became sinful of his own. No, he became saturated with our sinfulness. 33 years of being in a sinful world and yet remaining sinless on the cross, God made him to be sin. The stain of our sin penetrated him and then he was punished to death for our sins. God, the uncreated creator, became part of creation. But instead of being glory, glorified and worshipped as he had been in heaven, he was shamed and rejected. Rejected because, and not just by humans, but because the sinless righteous one became sinful for his people. He was punished, not just rejected by the Jews, not just murdered by the Romans, but punished by God for the sin that he now bore our sin. And then on that cross, this last aspect of this distinction between God with us is who is God? God is the author of life. Jesus, as God, is the author of life. That's actually a quote. That's a, that's a title that I hadn't remembered until I was studying for this sermon, where in Acts chapter 3, it would be Peter talking. He says, you denied the holy and righteous one. Right? Yeah, we talked about that asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. Jesus, Son of God, is creator, king, righteous, and he's the author of life. In Acts 17, Paul says the same thing, that the God who made the world and everything in it, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And in him, we live and move and have our very being, not just as Christians, but as creatures. And that is the very one who died on the cross for us. How can it be that God, the author and, and keeper of life, could die? But that's what we read, 1 Corinthians 15. Can it get any plainer? Christ died for our sins. This is the wonder of Emmanuel, creator became part of creation, and glorious king became shamed and rejected and 
the holy and righteous one, descended into a sinful world and more than that became sin for us and was punished by God, forsaken by God for that sin to the point where the author of life was killed. The giver of breath had no more breath. Right? The one who's keeping your heart beating right now, his heart stopped. The wonder of that gospel truth of God with us. That's the past of Emmanuel. Then there's the promise of Emmanuel, which is God is with us here in the present. We come to him by faith. We enter into that relationship with Jesus. Emmanuel is still a truth that rings over our lives, a, a banner as it were, over us. And how do we see that? Well, we see that by the help or the, the comfort, the assistance of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God, who is with us now, John 14. Do you remember what Jesus said? He's like, I'm going I'm to go. I'm going to ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another comforter to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Spirit, who is God, will be, or for us now, is with us. And then Jesus summarizes this. He's like, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I'll come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit, who is helping us. Paul says this again in Romans chapter 8. You are not in the flesh. That's not the definition of who you are anymore. You are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ, by his Spirit, is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I didn't count, but that sounds like about four or five times that passage where Paul just keeps reiterating that the Holy Spirit, who is God, is with you and in you right now and always. God is with you now. Because a God was with us in the person of Jesus Christ. But it's not just the Spirit. Even though Jesus bodily went away and has, has, is with us by his Spirit, yet his attention is with us as well. Because Christ is interceding for us. Jesus prays for us all the time. That's Romans 8 as well. He, who is to condemn us before God. Christ Jesus is the one who died, taking our penalty. More than that, who was raised, or justification, who is right now at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Because there's that with us in presence, and then there's the with us in um, attention and, and in love. Do you have family members that are not here in the building, or maybe not here in the community, maybe not here in the state anymore? And how do you express your ongoing love for them? It's not just the, my thoughts are with you. I never really understand how that's helpful when the world says that. Think, I'm sending good thoughts your way. What does that mean? Could you, what, what about praying for me? And that's what you do. 
right? Because your heart is with them and you can't, you can't do anything else for them but God. So you intercede for them. That's what Christ does for you. To the point where we can go through this whole list that Paul then says in Romans 8 of tribulation and distress and persecution and famineness or nakedness, danger or sword, even if we die, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because God now is with us. The attention of Jesus is on you. God is with you. By his spirit helping or comforting by the Son, Christ, praying for us, and then also by the Father himself receiving our prayers, receiving the prayers of his Son and receiving our prayers for ourselves or for others. Let us then with confidence, the author of Hebrews says, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's a welcome that the Father has for us as well. How easy is it for us to think that God thinks of us as we think of ourselves, either in like, well, I think I'm, I think I'm pretty good, but you know you're not, right? And so then you can swing to the other side. It's like, well, I am really lousy, uh, and and you are, uh, and so am I, uh, but that's not how God thinks of us. If by faith we have come to Christ, right? God hasn't hasn't just turned a blind eye to your sin; it's dealt with, and then He receives you because you're perfect because of Jesus. You're never perfect because of you, never good enough, but you have everything that you need in Jesus. By faith, that's what trusting him is. I am not enough. I have never been enough. I never will be enough. You are enough. And then that trusts me, and so now I come to the Father in the name of Christ, now and for eternity. But the Father hears. God is with you. Now, that's the present reality of Emmanuel. But what about the future? Because there's the wonder of Emmanuel in the past, and there's the the promise of Emmanuel in the present, and then there's the hope of Emmanuel in the future, that God will be with us forever. I hope that you catch the, the rhythm of that, right? The phrases that we find repeated throughout the Old Testament. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Right? How many times do we find that repeated? In Psalms and in the Lord speaks it of himself and his people repeat that back to him. That's a repeating phrase. We need to pay attention to that. And the other repeating phrase of the, the, the wonder and the promise and the hope of Emmanuel is this God will be with us. I will be with them. They will be my people. I will be their God. Right? That promise that he's made to, to all the patriarchs that we see centered into David and then centered into Jesus and then offered to us. In John 14, again, Jesus points forward to this future hope of Emmanuel. In my father's house are many rooms or mansions. I don't care which way you do it. It's, it's, it's amazing either way. Is there a, like one big mansion with a bunch of mansions? That's pretty cool. Or is it a one mansion with a bunch of rooms in it? I'm fine. I mean, give me a closet and I'm okay. Uh, But if it's like a whole room or a mansion or an estate, whatever it is, as long as, what's the center point? My father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I'll take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. That's the hope of Emmanuel, that Jesus 
is away preparing a place for us and has promised that he will come back because Emmanuel needs to be fulfilled. He needs to be with us and us with him. That's the point of the gospel. The presence and fellowship with God that we were created to enjoy and Adam and Eve tasted of and experienced in the garden, lost because of their sin, will be restored. Uh, More than even just restored, it's not even just like a going back, but actually like a a full-on fulfillment, a permanency, to where we read in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4, where it says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne. So this is God speaking over the new creation to his people, announcing to everything what reality. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them, with them, as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, no separation, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The promise, the the hope of God with us is that we are looking forward to that being a permanent, physical, spiritual reality. Not just he was with us, not just that he is with us, although distant, invisibly with us, visibly with us. Revelation 22 Verse 3 and 4 continues this, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Does it bring it all together? Right, A new creation instead of the old? That throne will be present? And it's not just angels or Isaiah who gets a kind of a quick trip in and then he has to go back? The throne will be right in the middle and will be around it. And Jesus will be on it. And we'll be close to him. And we'll have a place forever. God with us. They, his servants, us, we will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. This is the conclusion of all things. But it's still the same Emmanuel. The hope that we have. Is Is that what we long for? Man, Sunday afternoons distract us from it, though. Don't, does it? Right? And then Mondays, and isn't it good to come back together on, on Sunday to be like, you know what, the, the whole point of this right here is that, that God was with us, and God is with us, and God will be with us. A hunger and a longing for that. That's what I want. When I think of Emmanuel for you and for me, I want you to be amazed at Jesus. Creator, king, righteous, author of life. I want you to be amazed that he would, from there, descend into the form of a servant, and then be lowered even further, lower himself even further into death, even death on a cross. And then that text doesn't end at the bottom of that, does it, right? That text swings back up. Therefore, because of that humility and humiliation, God has highly exalted him. And God has given him a name, a title above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then his enemies will be cast out of his presence and his people will be gathered together. 
which are you? Are you amazed at Jesus? Or are you, are you bored or disinterested? Right? May, may the Spirit open our eyes to see Creator and see King and see holiness and see, see the author of life, the, the, the one who keeps us alive. And may the, open our eyes to see he became a creature like me. He, he entered he endured shame like I endure shame, and yet somehow even worse. And, and he endured sin against us, sin against him, but yet also taking our sin and, and even died for us. I want you to be amazed at Jesus. I, I want you to trust Jesus. We said, right, that, it's, that whatever you have done or are doing or could do, it, it is never enough to make you right with God. Right? So the trust in Jesus is not just saying a few words or walking a certain path, right? but it is clinging to the truth of everything that we just said about Jesus is true and is everything that you need to be forgiven before God. That's, that's trust. right? Where Paul, Paul brought righteousness that he had built up over the course of a lifetime, and he said, this is, this is, kinda, this is gross. This is actually unrighteous. Everything that I've done... And all, all the Sunday school, do you guys still do Sunday school pins? Like all the Sunday school pins, right? All the offerings that I've given, all of the commands that I kept. Like it's just not holy enough. So I just really want to kind of chuck that into the garbage so that my hands are empty so that I can receive the righteousness of Jesus. I want you to be amazed at Jesus, but not just as some sort of an intellectual exercise. I want you to trust in Jesus for your eternal salvation. And then I, I want you to know and love Jesus now and forever. I want to know Jesus. This is eternal life, that, that my people, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ that you have sent. That, that was Jesus' prayer for us. I'm just repeating it. I just want the same thing for me that Jesus wants for me. I want the same thing for you that Jesus wants for you, that you would know him. And to know him is to love him and to love him and trust him. And those who know him and love him and trust him will be with him. And I want you to be with Jesus, knowing and loving, worshiping forever. Emmanuel, God with us now and forever. That is a wonder, Father, that you would, you would not immediately crush us as we deserve in our sin. That you crush Jesus instead. That's, that's the the greatest wonder, I think, of the, of the gospel. I pray that you would, as I said, that you would open our, our eyes, our, our ears, our hearts to receive this truth from your word, whether for the, the first time, if someone here is, has never really come to embrace and to trust Jesus for all of who he is and what he has done for us, whether for the thousandth time that we would say, I'm amazed more, I love you more. Um, I do love you, but I, I pray you would help me to love you more and more now and forever. And work that in our, our hearts and in our lives, and then from, from this out into our communities, that Jesus would receive the glory that he deserves. Amen.